Our national conversation about conversations about race is brought to you by The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. Watch Rachel as she breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. It's The Rachel Maddow Show, not Raquel Maddow, but Rachel Maddow, covering America one story at a time, weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the B-Side for episode 14 of our national conversation about conversations about race, the A-word episode. I love that title, by the way, Tanner. I know you came up with that. I'm Raquel Cepeda here in uh, Panama Police New York Studios with my regular co-discussant, Tanner Kolbizinski. Spelled like kielbasa the sausage. Feel free to call me that if you want. And the broski... AC, we're going to come back to that. And joining us is our very special guest, <laughs> Rebecca Carroll, columnist for The Guardian and author of several narrative nonfiction books about race in America, including the award winning Sugar in the Raw. Sugar in the Raw. Yeah, girl. Welcome, Damn. Rebecca. Thank you. On our last episode, we discussed the A-word, assimilation, and its relative pros and cons, and the struggle to integrate two public schools, PS8 and PS307, here in our own rapidly gentrifying backyard in Brooklyn. Here's what some of you had to say. But first, first of all, I really loved the last episode. Thank you. Anand. Yes. I I related with him so much more this time around. I really, really, really enjoyed having him on. I wish I was actually on the show so I can finally meet him and go back and forth and well now you can meet him sort of virtually by yeah. responding to some of his comments oh on the my B-side. god totally yeah. it was really really great but i wanted to get to the last caller of the b-side laura who had a question that for some reason was directed to me but he still played <laughs> he still played the the voice note you know i gotta embrace the whole the whole of our listeners. If if somebody thinks I have a broish vibe, then maybe I have a broish vibe. Yo, that was Baratune was so right. Oh my god, she that was freaking dissed you. Sick burn. Mad. She was like, burn. <laughs> Ouch. It was like a rug burn, but in slow mo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, are you gonna stay? Are you gonna continue with the AC thing? Yeah, right. I'm gonna. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's gotten you this it's far. It's gotten me this far, yeah. and that you know, to Tanner's point about assimilating to a certain degree to to get ahead it's worked and people mispronounce my name what really is your badly. name ariel 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 ariel, ariel. 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 depends how you want to say it ariel 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 yeah did you have a lot of little people mermaid always, jokes growing up just tons third grade was yeah. terrible yeah i'm sure oh my yeah. god kids are get the worst it. kids are the worst and so when did you decide to be ac when i moved to the east coast from la as an 11 year old and nobody in the neighborhood spoke Spanish. Uh, there was like one black kid down the street and all of the rest of the families I can think of were white because I knew I didn't want to go through the frustration of, no, it's pronounced Ariel every time. Mm-hmm. And so do you mind when people say Ariel? The t- uh, I, I, don't mind, I don't mind when people say Ariel. That's the anglicized version of that name and people are at least trying. Yeah. But I really mind when people say Ariel. Right on. Because, like I'm not a because of that childhood trauma. I'm not a fun. Or a view from right. a plane. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's the backstory. There we but go. But you know what I realized after listening to the to that episode also that I kind of assimilated my name because even though it's not I don't people don't call me Raquel, they call me Raquel. 
Right. So isn't that an anglicized version of Raquel? It, it's all a matter of inches. You know, you, some people go all the way. Uh, it's just, you know, it's a matter of degrees. And well, you, you, but also, how do you what how do you prefer to be called? Raquel. Back in the day, you know, pe- people would ask me, what's your name? Raquel. Rachel? No, Raquel. Rachel? Okay, Rachel. So there are people that I didn't care to know, to get to know. When I was younger, you know, you're young and snarky and whatever. So those are the people that I barely know who call me Rachel. But the ones that were my friends would be like, yo, Rocky or Raquel or Rocky, you know. But I don't mind if you don't say Raquel. It's not that. To me, it's like whatever. Which actually brings me to something. I had an incident. Oh, we like Mm. incidents. I headlined the Brooklyn Target for Saturdays in Brooklyn Museum. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it's a Hispanic Heritage Month and that's when I'm allowed to come out and play. Right. So I was having a conversation. Actually, my husband, Sasha, interviewed me at the Elizabeth A. Sackler Center for Feminist Art. And there was a woman that came there and was like, oh, I want you to sign something for me. And I was like, fine. She's like, thanks, Rachel. I said, no, my name is Raquel. It's Rachel. I was like, no, it's Raquel. It's whatever. It's all the same. No. That was my. And I was like, actually, no. And if you can't get that through your mind, maybe you shouldn't even be here. But who says that? It doesn't, it's, she just said, it doesn't, I've been told that quite a few times, but the most recent time was like, Mm -hmm. whatever, whatever, it's like, it's all the same, whatever. Kind of like, what, and my husband was just looking at me like, oh God, what is she going to do? But I just was like, just leave then. Yeah. Um, She didn't leave. She sat in the front and um, asked a bunch of like, I don't know, strange questions. But, um, but at any rate, I was just thinking about this episode Mm. because I had heard it on my way to Brooklyn Museum. Yeah, I, I understand people going Ariel, Ariel, not getting the distinction, but to say that your name is something that it's not is like a different, like Rachel is not Raquel. And Raquel isn't even that like foreign. No. I mean, yeah, Raquel's I don't understand like, that at all. Or I was named after Raquel, Raquel Welch. Raquel. Yeah, I was Ra- named after Raquel, Raquel Welch. Welch. Well, Raquel Welch doesn't pr- pronounce it Raquel. No, she goes Raquel, but my father's Dominican, my, my birth mother's Dominican. Mm-hmm. So they call me Raquel, you know, my grandparents. Are, so I started here is when I was like, okay, I'm Raquel. Yeah, it's right. easier. It's just easier for people. So I guess in a way that was a form of assimilating. I have to. I wanted to call myself out for that because I did. I'm not like Raquel. Well, it's not even calling yourself out. It's not like well, fessing up or coming because I, I was like you know kind of hard on you about like the assimilating thing. Like you just. I mean, you, you're the man. You're <clears throat> impressing me. <laughs> you know, you make decisions for yourself or for your children of whether or not you're going to put them on one path. And we got some, some listener responses along these, yes. these lines of some of these choices suck. Some of them are just practical. Some of them are you know hurtful and insulting. And it's a, it's a difficult road to navigate. So yeah. I do, I do want to actually get to the part of Laura's question okay, that she this. directed to you, Raquel. Okay, let's do uh, it. That wasn't having anything to do with a, my broish vibe. Right. I was born in Washington Heights to Dominican immigrants, and Spanish was the first language I learned how to speak and read. However, when I was nine, my parents moved us to Florida, away from all of our extended family. Because of that move, there was no longer a need to communicate on a daily basis with relatives who didn't speak English. I began speaking to my parents only in English, while they spoke to me in Spanish, and I found that I was slowly losing my fluency. Today, thanks to a solid foundation in the language and years of high school Spanish along with a few college courses, I can speak Spanish at an intermediate level. But for years, I found myself embarrassed to even practice the words in a language that I felt I should know by heart. And even today, I stumble over the words. Having moved back to the city, I find myself in an uncomfortable place where corporate America expects fluency from me as a Latina job applicant. And I find little discussion about second generation Latino Americans 
That includes issues beyond the traits we share with our parents. I'm very proud to be Latina, but I am not my parents. My values don't necessarily align with traditional Dominicans, and I can't even tell you how to cook some mangu. These facts always make me wonder how I would have turned out if I had finished growing up in the Heights instead of a suburb in Orlando, Florida. I worry about that cultural loss and what assimilation will cost my future children. And I wonder if Raquel specifically could speak on how her children cope with biculturalism. Thanks for everything y'all do and keep up the great work. Thank you, Laura, for that um, very thoughtful question. My fellow Dominiorkian, right? So my three-year-old isn't dealing with that yet. However, my 18-year-old deals with that almost on a daily basis. She also speaks Spanish. You know, she speaks Spanish, but not very fluently. And that's partly because uh, her father was a uh, black American and her, my, her grandmother, my stepmother, is Finnish. So she actually grew, grew up speaking a little bit of Finnish and English. And I remember one time she did Model UN and this kid from Finland came up to me and said, there's something wrong with your daughter, ma'am. And I said, what's wrong? She asked me for chocolate milk, but in Finnish. I said, yeah, her stepmother's Finnish. And she was just like completely taken aback by this brown girl with big curls coming up to him and speaking to him in Finnish. But I tell her when she's like, well, if I don't, you know, I speak Finnish and the other kids in school making fun of me, like your identity, you know, you're not any less Dominican American and black American. You're just identities enhanced by the people around you. Your parents, me, our generation, you know, we're in boxes. You guys are freer than us. You develop your own identity. You develop your own thing. And I don't believe that just because of the loss of some language that you're less of anything. It's a spiritual thing. And if you feel connected, you don't really have to know how to make mangu to embrace and to value and hold dear the things about your parents' culture that you do like. Sociologists call that selective acculturation. And they believe that, you know, where you take some of what you like about, you know, being American, which I, there's a lot I like about being American, and a lot I don't like about my Dominican side. So well, you take the best of both worlds and you kind of mix that and fuse that for it to, you know, to, to a point where you're happy with it and where it works for you and your family. You're not any less Dominican or less Dominican-American or less anything because of that. One thing I read called The Trouble with Diversity by Michaels, I believe, is the author, and, and he makes the point that, yeah, you don't want everyone to assimilate into one homogenous pool of whiteness and different cultures have different have value, but if we put so much emphasis on culture that we encourage people not to learn standard English, for example, then we are hurting their economic prospects in America. And the way to look at it is if you stop speaking Spanish and you start speaking standard English, you have not lost the ability to communicate through language. If you stop listening to hip-hop and you start listening to country and Western music, you have not lost the ability to experience emotion through music. Culture is culture, and there are different cultures. And you may lose the ability to read Gabriel Garcia Marquez in the original Spanish, but you can read Zadie Smith in the original English. Really, you can't look at it as a zero-sum loss. It is an accident of history that you ended up leaving Washington Heights and moving to Orlando. I started out in Houston and ended up in Alabama mm-hmm. through choices that were not of my own or my parents. It was just economic forces. And you just you take what's there. But I keep on getting, especially when I, when I, you know, this past month when I've been doing all these talks, that kids that don't ha- retain Spanish, for example, Dominican Spanish, because we don't speak Spanish Spanish, um, or Puerto Rican Spanish or whatever dialect, they feel somehow like they're less than, they're less than. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's one thing that, that we haven't addressed here is that she's talking, she is talking about loss and she is mm-hmm. talking about how that feels. And yes, um, the, it is a spiritual connection, but there's also something very real about feeling a kind of gaping 
hole where that could have been. I mean, I certainly felt that growing up as black in a, a white family in a white town. And when I realized and when I found myself around black people, I felt I was I felt that I was grieving. Mourning almost in New Hampshire, Warner, New Hampshire. And so that's really very real. And of course, mm-hmm. you can make culture what it is and she can raise her children the way she wants. But I do think it's important to validate and look at that kind of loss, that kind of mourning of that first hand, first person cultural experience. Well, she did talk about knowing Spanish first and and it started leaving her because she just didn't practice it. And I found myself sometimes even today like, oh my God, I forgot actually a word in English or I'll forget it in Spanish or in Dominican Spanish rather because I'm stuck. It's like negotiating this liminal space. Um, But it doesn't make me feel any less than. Right. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that that less than or more than is really tricky when you're talking about being bicultural or multicultural because there is this sense that you can kind of meld them. And I don't think that that's as easy as it, I mean, maybe for for you and for other folks, it's different for everyone. Mm -hmm, Um, I think for, you know, for me, it's been really, really challenging, certainly because it's black and white, right? right? Which are the two, you know, warring races um, and cultural experiences. But I think that that's that's something that we are going to look at and see more and more. But in terms of melding our cultural identities. Right. No, I had a a guy ask me on Twitter, he's like, because I was pretty pro-assimilation in the way we discussed in the last segment. He's like, don't you think code switching is a happy medium that allows you to keep both? And I'm like, yeah, and that lasts for maybe about a generation. But then, like, you're going to fall one way or the other. You're going to, the Spanish is going to fall into disuse. Or you're going to be in a new social setting where the old cultural norms, you know, aren't as useful and you're going to pivot that way. So you can go back and forth for a while. Right. But yes, again, though, you know, we had a couple of, my husband is white, and so our, our son is racially ambiguous looking, but black identifies. He right. made that decision himself, you know, without any prompting. And we had a couple over for dinner who said, well, do, aren't you afraid that you are neglecting him or robbing him of his white identity? And so, you know, the response to that from my husband, who's the white one, was sort of like, what is that? I mean, it's everywhere and it's nothing. And it's it, he's not going to miss out on it because it's all that he, there is. It's all that he sees. And so it's much more important to us for him and especially for me, having grown up without black folks around me and my immediate family, to really preserve that and to cultivate that and to have that be mm-hmm. front and center. Every weeknight, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. Sure, that's a lot of searching and it takes a lot of work. But even in a country this big, there are no local stories. Your life and what you see, your life and what you see from your front porch is directly connected to the national news. Watch Rachel as she connects the dots and covers America's news one story at a time. It's the Rachel Maddow Show, weeknights at 9 Eastern only on MSNBC. All right, next, I want to get this email in from Teresa. I hope it's not Teresa. And she writes us, I just wanted to give my thoughts on the Brooklyn schools conversation. I live in Los Angeles, and we're part of the L.A. Unified School District, which is the second largest school district in the country. I don't know if it's the same as in New York, but in L.A., diversity is a big buzzword when talking about schools. People love the idea that their kid will be surrounded by people of different backgrounds. But they don't want to actually transform a segregated school. Like Tanner said, nobody wants to be the first. People are more likely to start a charter school when they can have some control of the social makeup and what kinds of teachers, often young and white, are employed there. I'm black and my husband is white. 
and we have a son that just started kindergarten. We live in Baldwin Hills, right across the street from the elementary school. The school is a magnet school with a new principal who has some amazing ideas. It's 77% black, 20% Hispanic, and 1% white. I felt like I had to focus on whatever school was going to challenge him the most and open up the most opportunities for him. His school is 40% white, 30% Hispanic, 16% black, and it's in a majority white, very wealthy neighborhood. I didn't feel the need for him to attend a black school, but at the same time, I think it's beneficial to the neighborhood for the white families to attend a black school. Is that fair? Am I putting my own selfish needs as a parent before my son's? Or do minorities have a right to be selfish given this country's history? Keep up the good work, Teresa. I'm, I'm so surprised that, we, that people even use the word diversity anymore, um, just because it seems like it's lost all meaning. But using it... <laughs> What? We talk about that all oh, the no. time. Liberals and multiculturalists use the word diversity the same way George Bush used the word freedom after 9-11. It's just a word for everything. It's just, it's just everything. It's, everything. it's like anything that is, <clears throat> when white people use it, it's like, it's a way of saying, I agree with whatever person of color I'm standing in front of right mm -hmm. now. Like, you could be a pro-black nationalist HBCU advocate, and I'm going to talk about the importance of diversity. You could be an integrating assimilationist black conservative, and I'm going to talk about the power of diversity in front of both of you. <laughs> right. And so that you'll both think I'm agreeing with you. It's an Orwellian nonsense doublespeak word. Continue. Uh, <laughs> so when we were looking for a, a, a elementary school for, for our son, you know, it was, it was really, I would talk with, with parents on the playground of, of the preschool or whatever, and I would say, you know, because I came from a rural town where you go to the elementary school that's in your town, and then you go to the regional district and whatever. It's not this whole, like, crazy, get on wait lists, you know, do it's these tours. It's more stressful, right, un than, like, college. Real, it's unfucking it real, is, really. Right? Yeah. And so, um, but what I found was really also unreal is the way in which people talked about diversity or did not talk about diversity and the way that parents, white parents, would look at me when I said, is that not important to you for your children? And they would look at me like, what are you talking about? Like, what are the, 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 the test scores? What's the curriculum? Those are important things. Those are really important things. But this is also, this is the time that your kid is socializing. This is the time that these children are identifying with parity, who their peers are. Um, and why would you not want your kid to be around a sort of properly diverse, for lack of a better word, classroom? So what I what I realized in, in the process, because we were the school we were zoned for was probably 85 percent Hispanic and Latino. And there at the time, a major influx gentrification. <laughs> um, but uh, but what I what I realized is that sometimes and I think this a little bit of this happening with the PS8 as well is that white parents come into these schools and they don't realize it's like they're renovating a brownstone they're like let's put the um, the garden over here and the and the and the window the skylight here mm -hmm. and the farm to table kitchen here that was what was happening with the school that we were zoned for and i realized i don't want Even that in brooklyn what pardon? Yes, yes. in Brooklyn. Okay. Yeah. Um, Can I guess? Yeah. <laughs> but to answer specifically the question, does she think white students benefit from going to predominantly black or brown schools? Yes, I think they they do. I don't see that 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 is being selfish on her part. She's right. I mean, if you're a minority parent in America, you're, you're doing what you can to get where you need to go. And the way the system is currently designed, it's every man for himself. So if you're... If you're going every man for himself, then you're just doing what you have to do because that's the way we built this thing for the time being. 
Um, this thing meaning this country? The, well, this country, the schools, <laughs> schools, schools specifically. The schools specifically because it is, especially with all this talk about school choice and and you're just looking at all these options going, where can I get my kid? What's what's the best choice? And I got to I gotta do this magnet thing or I got to do this rezoning thing. Like you said, it, it, we, you grew up in this town which is like, well, I live here. I go to this school. That's the regional high school. Like that's kind of you feel like how it's, that's how it should be, but it's not. And you know what? Just because you have this certain percentage of Latinos and, and, and or and or Hispanics, certain percentage of, of black Americans, white Americans, just because it's diverse in numbers doesn't mean that it's diverse in attitude or diverse in way of teaching, diverse, you know, economically. My daughter went to a really diverse uh, high school in New York, and it was very, you know, it was full of a lot of different people of economic backgrounds and what have you, and even... A lot of, you know, kids from Queens and from Brooklyn, from all over New York. East Staten Island, maybe, I think. She was put down for speaking Dominican Spanish in her Spanish class by a white teacher that was teaching Spanish because it wasn't proper Spanish. And when I made a complaint, I got called in and chastised for, are you being, like, racist because, you know, what, she can't teach Spanish because she's a white lady? That's not what I said. I said that you made my daughter feel less than... You made her feel like shit. And only less than 5% of people who speak Spanish, if you will, in America speak Spaniard Spanish. It's See, not even, it's I, like, yeah. it's like you can't, the nuances get lost, right? So just because you have this group of people and this bank, it doesn't mean that they're learning the right thing or they're learning in, a, in, a, in an environment where they feel safe or they feel like, you know, they're being encouraged to. Which is a whole nother yeah, problem. I mean, I, ex- problem. I anticipate kids being assholes. So like, I really, I, I anticipate and make room for that and a have conversations that. with that. <laughs> but the teachers, and, and, you know, predominantly white, because black and brown teachers don't want anything to do with that mess that is yeah. school teaching. But that's what we need. For yeah. our kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All this talk about test scores and curricula and what's the rating and all that's all nonsense. It, everyone's focusing on the academics about is this academically better for children of color to get into these schools. White people are only willing to go where the test scores are good. It's not about academics. It's about culture. Mm-hmm. And like we said in this this struggle between PS38 or PS8 and PS307, PS8 is already 35% black and Hispanic. That's not tokenism. That's a substantial representation. If you want diversity, that's like a substantially middle-class environment with also a good sampling of people of different backgrounds, right, one assumes. But the white people are firmly in control of the ship there. Certainly. Right? <clears throat> to go to a different place that's... 80, 90% black, where black people are the minority, you're not in charge of the ship. And as I've said before on the, the show- The white person's not in charge. Right, right. Right. The white person's not in charge of the ship. I'm, I'm assuming yeah. the point of view of the white decision maker raising a kid. And so when you're a, a white person or when you're anyone raising a child in this country, no matter what rung of the socioeconomic ladder you're on, the rung above you is wider than the one that you're at. So you want your kid to, yes, if you're a self-aware person, you're like, the country's changing. I want my son or to know Hispanic people and black people and people of all different backgrounds to be able to navigate that world as that becomes more the reality. But the higher you go, the wider it gets. And so if you want to be successful in a lot of these industries and things that are still lily white, you need access to that social capital as well. You need to be hanging out with the kids whose fathers and parents are architects and lawyers and doctors and everything else. And so you're going to look for a school that has both diversity and a substantial chunk of middle class social capital. That's the the needle you're trying to thread as a parent. Cool. Well, yes, but don't you also? I mean, that's if so that's dry. what you're instilling your in your kid, I mean that if you want to be this, you have to be 
in this kind of environment, you have to be at this rung of the ladder and you have to continue. I mean, that's just perpetuating what's what's currently going on. Right. Yeah. Right. Which I mean, is exactly what the which is exactly what the caller is asking about is like, I want my kid. Am I selling out by sending my kid to a wealthy white school because I think that's what's best for them? Oh, I didn't hear that. I didn't hear the wealthy white I mean, I felt like she was saying that that white students also benefit from having minority students. Right, but the first part of the email was that, that they've, they've got this ninety this majority <laughs> black and Hispanic elementary school across the street, and they send their oh, kid to a majority white school mm-hmm. in a wealthy neighborhood, in a wealthy white neighborhood. Are they doing the wrong thing was the question. And... I recognize, yes, you're right. It is, it is not challenging the status quo to do that. But that parent is making a fundamentally self-interested decision that will advance the interest of their child somewhat at the cost of fixing the rest of the system. And that sure. is, that is sure. the paradox that every, every parent is finding themselves in. So long as it's identified as, a, yeah, as uh, out of self-interest, yeah. As so long right. as you know that that is what you're doing and your kid knows that's what you're doing. Right. Yeah, I think that's fine. There we go. Okay, so this one puts a little bit of a spin on the notion of assimilation. This is from CZ. I'm loving the A-Word show, and damn right you should be expecting angry messages from our subjects up north. It's getting a bit tiring to see Canada being treated like a second-class country, when in fact it is the most peaceful and prosperous colony of the American superpower. I enjoyed the tangentito about Anand's family briefly relocating to France and quickly coming back to America. My bohemian Nigerian parents sent my black ass to French schools from the age of five, and I lived in Paris until 2008 and loved it. I often wish I could bring all of black America to Paris just for a bit. I'd be lying if I said that Paris is a post-racial paradise. It's much better than the U.S. in some ways, but hideously primitive in others. Would love to hear you all talk about being black, brown, yellow, whatever in another land. And happy October to all of you. I haven't lived in Paris, but when I go, my brother, well, somebody that I call my brother who's more like a cousin, like a primo hermano, you know, somebody you're very close to, uh, lives in Paris and actually is designing the national stamp. He's Dominican from uptown. Graffiti writer, now, uh, you know, visual artist, designing the stamps coming out next year for the country. So he's had it great over there. I've only, I mean, I, I definitely have seen and heard very xenophobic comments and what, you know, what have you, but I've also experienced a lot of pan-African love over there from people of all different backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds that are from the diaspora. So I've only, I mean, I've I, so far, knock on wood, I'm knocking on my forehead here, um, have only had great experiences yeah. there, and so have my kids. Yeah, I also have um, an ex boyfriend who's still a very good friend and is a hip-hop artist over there and does very well and loves it and is raising his family there and I have spent some time there as well. I mean, I think it's really different being American, black American in Paris. There's this sort of romance around it and of course James Baldwin and Josephine Baker and all all the rest. But uh, but I I know that that it's not as the caller said, I know that it's not utopian for sure. But it's a, you know, it's a different every country has that dynamic of cultural push and pull, disconnect, the haves and the have nots. Oh yeah, um, there's no such thing as right. utopia. But, but yeah. yeah, yeah. But but you know what I think what I'm taking away from was the importance of travel and how for me I used to take my daughter out of school all the time when she was like only you know in kindergarten, first grade, to take her with me anytime I had to travel. And my son has been traveling since he's like, you know, seven, eight months. 
and I believe that you can travel travel even before you learn how to speak because there's something that you kind of that enters your DNA your memory here's a story that says everything there is to know about being a black person in Paris my brother is a French translator lived in Paris for many years when he first got to Paris he had a friend who was also an American translator young uh, black woman in her 20s loved it oh yes oh we're so I don't know about black American that everyone just treated like red carpet everywhere she went James Baldwin you know the right. whole the whole thing and as she lived in Paris and stayed there for many years, her French became flawless. And they started treating her like shit everywhere yeah. she went. And then she went back to her American-accented French, and the red carpet came back out again. Right. Uh, so as yeah. I was yeah. saying. Yeah. Yeah. Out of find the yeah. Other. yeah. There you go. All right. We're going to wrap this one up with an email about Jeb Bush, uh. who came up last <laughs> episode. This is from Kim. I love your show, but was mystified by your collective praise for Jeb Bush as culturally complex and ahead of the curve due to his bilingualism and multicultural immediate family. That's just his private life. In his public political life, Governor Jeb Bush gutted affirmative action in Florida, which led to a massive and successful black voter registration drive, which led to the Republican legislature hiring a consulting firm to purge the voter rolls using parameters which guaranteed the illegal disenfranchisement of thousands of black Floridians just in time for the 2000 election, which led to the election day debacle in Florida, the electoral college deadlock, and then the Republican majority on the Supreme Court extra constitutionally selecting Jeb Bush's brother as president. And we all know how that turned out. <laughs> My immediate family is biracial, so I get the part of what you were saying, but the pain and damage presidential candidate John Ellis Bush inflicted on black citizens for whom the right to vote is both existential and insecure pretty much disqualifies him from being called ahead of the curve or progressive in any way when it comes to matters of culture and race. Just saying. From Kim in Tennessee. Just saying. I was mystified, too. Yeah, I, I, did, too. I, I absolutely was, too. I don't even know well, what Let me just say, say that that was on an embarrassment day. I really wasn't uh, down with where they were taking <laughs> that, where they were taking that part of the conversation. Throwing um, them under the bus. You know, A, we don't know... As 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 you've said from your experience with in the Dominican Republic, a lot of people in the Dominican Republic are not necessarily the most open-minded people in the world. So we don't know anything about exactly. his wife's politics or the the, exactly. the part of of Latin America that he has embraced. It can be exactly you know, right. and and just the fact that he would make what appear to be progressive choices in his personal life and then betray those things in in policy and in office. I mean, maybe that's the tragedy they were alluding to, but... but it also doesn't make him multicultural. Exactly. He's Just... still white. But you know what's so funny? Like, there were these articles that were coming out. Mm -hmm. Remember when people, when we, they when it was discovered that Jeb Bush checked the Hispanic or Latino box? Right. And then there were all these conservative pundits that were writing, like, why can't he be Latino? Because we're all looking, you know, they're basically all looking for, like, the next group they can align themselves with, Right. And to me, they were trying to speak to those Latinos, and there are many, not all, that have like Stockholm syndrome for their colonizer, for lack of a better phrase. And it doesn't mean that it's the right Latino. It doesn't mean it's the right. So for all we know, his wife can be, you know, Ben Carson in a dress. You never know. It's like it's just just because you're marrying somebody of a different background doesn't mean anything. And I was mystified by the word progressive it was too and I just don't even know what to say I'm like tongue tied I don't even know what to say other than that I, I totally totally um, uh, agree with uh, our last what, what's her name Kim all I can say is that I agree with Kim 100,000 million percent 
You know what? I would like to ask our, our listeners, callers, emailers to please suggest a word to replace diverse, diversity, anything to do with that. Because we tried Amalgamagical, remember? Didn't take. Wait, it wait, what did you try? Amalgamagical. When Baratunde, myself, and Tanner first had this conversation, it was at the Brooklyn Historical Society, and we asked, we put it out there, like, these are the words that we don't like, that they're, like, played out. They lost its meaning. Can you suggest other words? And somebody tweeted us, instead of diversity, how about Amalgamagical? And I actually really love the word, and I try to use it, but it just didn't stick. So what I use is two words, a cultural conversancy. Cultural what? Conversancy. Cultural conversancy. Conversancy. Say that, say that three times fast. Cultural conversancy or racial <laughs> conversancy, which is just to be in of and of the language and of the culture. Okay. We need another, We need some more you suggestions. Know, yeah, yeah okay. it's not sticking. Yeah. Pippy. <laughs> Boo. Oh, man, I thought you were going to go with that one. Cultural conversancy. No, it has to be something that's like one word and like easy to use. I'm going to put that out Frank there. Frank Lutz needs to be able to put it in a focus group and have it work. Exactly. It has to work. So keep sending us your emails, your thoughts, your love letters, your hate mail, everything to us at showaboutrace at gmail.com. And you can actually leave voice memos and send it to us that way. We are now going to go into the main episode of our national conversation about conversations about race. You can find us on Twitter at Show About Race, on Facebook at Show About Race, or you can send us an email or a voice memo at showaboutrace at gmail.com.